Did you ever have a fear of public speaking yourself? Absolutely, Hudson. I still do today, to be honest. I think the fear of public speaking is something that never goes away, but rather is defeated by the message that we have to share with the world. Welcome to the Raising Confident Teens podcast, where we talk about life and leadership skills with teens and their parents. I'm Hudson. And I'm Rachel. I'm so glad to have you back on the mic with me, Hudson. Uh, All my kids have been MIA this summer. Whenever it came time to record, they were always missing. And I got kind of used to them always being available when we were all stuck here together because of Corona. Um, But now they're all working again, and it's hard to find somebody to help me. So tonight, Hudson is on the mic. So we are so excited for our special guest today. Hudson, do you know what glossophobia is? No. No. Neither did I until today. I looked it up. I was thinking, uh, I've heard lots of times, so many people are afraid of public speaking. And I was wondering, like, is there a statistic I could find about that? And I looked it up and it said, I don't know if this is true or not, we'll have to ask our special guest, but 75% of people have a fear of public speaking. Does that make sense? Do you think that's true? Probably. Probably. All right. So our special guest today is going to talk to us about how, what we can do to help us get over that fear. Brendan Kumarasamy is our special guest. He has a YouTube channel called Master Talk, and through it, he has inspired thousands of change makers to work on their communication skills and share their ideas with the world. Brendan started Master Talk as a hobby when he was 22 years old. He just wanted to help people, and apparently his message resonated with so many people. Brendan provides the exact tools on how to master public speaking to use it as a way to spread ideas that matter to people who need to hear them most. And his big dream is to create a world where everyone has access to free tools on how to communicate effectively. He's also the coach of many high-level CEOs and is joining us today to talk about how teens can become better communicators. Welcome to the podcast, Brendan. That was one of the best introductions I've ever heard of myself. Thank you so much, all of you. It's such an honor. Now you're excited to hear what you're going to say, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I've been really impressed. I've been listening to your stuff. And I've been been like, yeah, he really does. He is a really good communicator. And I hope you can share some of your little nuggets with us today. How did you get started coaching people on public speaking? Yeah, of course, Hudson. So where the journey began for me was when I was in university, I went to business school and I did these things called case competitions. Think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So while other guys my age were playing football or rugby or any other sport that's a bit too dangerous for me, I applied that same competitive spirit, but to presentations. So I presented hundreds of times and I essentially became a communication coach by accident where I was helping other students in the program get better with their presentations because we couldn't really afford a coach. We didn't have the financial resources for that. And then after I got into corporate America, or I guess Canada in my case, I I realized that communication was a wider issue where a lot of people needed the skill but they also couldn't afford a speech coach. So I started making videos in my mom's basement, and then a few years later it turned into an interesting business, and I never looked back ever since. Awesome. 
so for those of you that didn't pick up on that, Brendan says university. So that tells us he's not from the United States. He is our first Canadian to have ever been on the podcast. So you you win the trophy for that. So were you born in Canada? You got it. I was born and raised in Montreal, which is, for those who are in the States, that's a couple of hours drive from New York City, probably six or seven hours. And my parents were born in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. How long before you were born did they immigrate? Ooh, they, so I was born in the country. They got married in 95, so 1995. And so, yeah, and they, my dad immigrated in the early 90s. And my mom came just a few months after they got married. And then I was born a few months after that. So right before you were born. You got it. With my mom. And then my, my dad is, was there for a few years before that, though. So did you ever have trouble? Uh, you, you were raised in a, a household that was not native to Canada. Did your parents speak? Well, you, what do you guys speak in Montreal? Is it French? You got it. And that actually plays a lot into... Uh, the, the story, which was I struggled a lot with communication early on for a couple of reasons. The first one was my parents weren't native speakers, to your point, where they weren't really good at English or French. And they didn't want to speak to me in those languages because they didn't want me to have their accent, which I thought was a really smart move. But the other piece that they did is they put me in a French education system when I was five which was, of course, the smart thing to do, and I'm super grateful for it today. But in the moment, it uh, didn't feel so good because I was practicing and giving presentations my whole life in a language I didn't know, so it was quite the challenge. Did you ever have a fear of public speaking yourself? Absolutely, Hudson. I still do today, to be honest. I think the fear of public speaking is something that never goes away but rather is defeated by the message that we have to share with the world. And I'm sure a lot of you who are listening to me probably don't believe me. That's usually the answer I get. But the reason I'm still scared of public speaking is it always depends on the context. So if I'm having this podcast, this great conversation with this awesome family, yeah, it, it makes sense that I'm probably not scared of public speaking because I've done a lot of interviews. But if I'm speaking to Tony Robbins or I'm speaking to someone I really admire, the nerves really come back. So it's important for us to acknowledge that the fear of public speaking exists within all of us and trying to remove it is never the right strategy, but rather saying, is my message important enough to defeat the fear? Good analogy I use is the boxing match ring, where one side of the ring you have the fear and the other side of the ring you have your message. The fear will always be in the ring, but as long as your message gets the knockout punch, you're going to be just fine with your communication skills. That's a great analogy. Funny story about me, Brendan. I was so shy as a kid. I would I cried every day at kindergarten because I was just so afraid of talking to people. And even up until a couple years ago, like I had this tremendous fear of public speaking. And um, we adopted internationally. And this woman came up to me and asked me to speak at a woman's brunch and I'm like, no, I'm not the person for this. <laughs> I think you need to ask someone else. And she was like, no, I think, I think you're the one that's supposed to do that. And she totally changed my life. Like that was a real pivotal moment for me. And that's actually, if I look back, I can see how that led to what we're doing now. Because I just started speaking about adoption uh, in, a, in a bunch of different 
environments. And then that led to us doing this. But I would have never probably done any of this if she hadn't made me see that my message was important, you know? So that's true. If your why is big enough, the fear won't be so scary. That's a beautiful story, Rachel. And I find that actually interesting. Like half of me is like, wow, that's so awesome. The other half of me is they have speakers at women's brunches. I guess there's something new I just learned right there. <laughs> yeah, we don't just eat. It was Yeah. It's interesting to me because out of all of our kids, Hudson is the one that is the one, I would say he has the least fear of public speaking. I guess some people, some people just don't really fear it that much. I remember he was about eight and he got up and did this presentation at a talent show on bees and his slides weren't turning out right. And he was just cool as a cucumber. And he was like, you know, that's upside down. Don't worry about it. And I was like, wow, that's, I can't believe he's up there doing that. I've, I've heard that a lot of public speakers though are introverts and they're afraid of speaking, which is surprising to me, but do you think that's because the people that are naturally good are more likely to wing it and don't practice as much that that the ones that are more scared practice more and more and more and are better speakers? Hmm. That's a fascinating question, Rachel. I think what I would say is I've definitely met people who are scared on both sides of the aisle. So let's say you take me as an example. I'm super extroverted. But I'm also open about the fact that there's definitely situations where I am scared of communication. But I've also seen the opposite where I've seen introverts who just aren't scared at all about communication. But there is one consistent theme behind why most of us are scared of public speaking. That's probably an angle that would help a lot of people. Is most of us see communication as a chore. It's kind of like doing the dishes. And the reason is because every presentation we've given in our lives is mandatory. So let's imagine this. Let's say I said, oh, Keith, Rachel, Hudson, you guys want to get breakfast together and then present all day? Says nobody <laughs> ever. And because of that, we grow up thinking that it's a chore because every time you go into school, every time you go into work, it's never, oh, Keith, what are you excited about presenting today? Or in Hudson's case, in high school, in elementary school, it's not, Hudson, what do you care about? No, it's, uh, Hudson, I need you to do a presentation on Shakespeare. And he's thinking like, what's a Shakespeare? Is that like a fruit or something? <laughs> so, yeah, so he's not excited. Even Hudson resonates with that too, right? Right, right. So, so yeah, that's why most of us are scared of public speaking. If I had told you that, you know, you had to play basketball every single day for eight hours a day, and if you took a day off, I would hit you on the head, we probably wouldn't like basketball as much either. But we're doing that a lot with uh, the next generation of leaders, especially the younger ones uh, with public speaking. And and part of Master Talk is to change that as well. You know, we, we were having this conversation before you came on about the whole 75%. Do you think that's an accurate number? 75% of people fear public speaking? Yeah, my, my expertise is usually is mostly based on anecdotes and experience. I did hear a similar study that was done in Germany, uh, or it was rather German researchers who had said it was up to 77%. Their names uh, don't come to me right now. But I do believe the number is accurate. But I think the idea is, whether it's accurate or not, is public speaking is definitely a widespread issue regardless. So it's definitely something we need to fix. Absolutely. I just have this crazy question. Like, do you think 
that this is a first world issue, the fear of public speaking? Like, do you think that tribes, people in the jungle are afraid of public speaking, afraid of getting up in front of everybody else and talking? (laughs) That's an interesting question. Huh. I I think, you you know, now I'm um, I'm kind of thinking this out loud here. I would say anyone who has been through the traditional education system, a vast majority of those individuals are going to grow up fearful or see public speaking as a chore because that is how the education system is designed for. Okay, Hudson, every presentation you're going to give is mandatory, and if you don't do a good job, I'm going to punish you for it. And then when you get your first job and you present again, and you don't if you don't do a good job, I'll punish you for it too. That's the traditional education system. The the analogy in or rather the the thought experiment that you're alluding to, Rachel, is for the people who don't go through the the traditional education system. Do those people grow up being scared of communication? That would really depend on how those people are being schooled. So if you think about the tribes or those different, and I, this is actually something I'm going to ponder after the show. I think it's a fascinating question, is if those people go through a different set of teachings or lessons in their life, if those lessons are designed in a way where that person grows up thinking that they're going to be great speakers, they're going to become great speakers. But if that system is archaic, like the U.S. education system or most education systems across the world, then yes, that person's probably likely to grow up scared of communication too. But definitely a topic I need to explore on my own time for sure. Yeah, like, you know, like the Indian, the American Indians, it was like an honor to get up and talk in front of the tribe, you know, like something you wanted to do. I don't know. Mm. I'm just thinking out loud here. So, so Brendan, what could we do? You're saying that the education system teaches us not how not to teach, how not to become a good public speaker. So how could we change that? Absolutely. I'll, I'll demonstrate this live super easy. So let's say Hudson was one of my clients, right? Here's what I would do. Super simple. Number one, I would make him pick the topic. So let's say I asked you, Hudson, right now, what's your favorite thing to do? Like, what do you just love to do? Feel free to list out a couple of things for us. Airsoft. What's airsoft? (laughs) That's cool. It's like paintball, but with foam. Not foam. It's plastic BBs. (laughs) They go out in the woods and play war. I love that. So so walk me through that process, Hudson. What does that look like? Let's say I'm new to Airsoft. I want to play like this game with you. Talk, talk to me about why you love it so much and what, what the game entails. So to start, you'd have to get a gun and then, I mean, and a face mask, but that's about all you have to have to start. And then, I mean, I like it because I get to hang out with my, my friends and we have fun. I love it, man. That's awesome, Hudson. So here's what I would do with Hudson, is I would say, look, Hudson, here's what we're going to do. You're going to make a presentation on Airsoft, and your goal is to convince the other kids in the group that by the end of your done speaking, they all have to say, we have to play Airsoft. <laughs> That's the goal. So the, the number one principle here, and I love that Hudson's on, on a call. This is so cool. I get like a live demonstration of this. You can see it in real time. Is one, have the young leader pick and take ownership of the presentation rather than me saying, Hudson, I want you to talk about this weird politician that you've never met in your life and that, frankly, you don't care about, right? So that's one. Number two is have the other kids in the group give him feedback and I always go last. 
So what I do in my programs is, and everyone can steal this, by the way, that's the key. Be sure to apply this if, if you want to do this, is you make the kids the teacher. There's a lot of kids I've coached in my life that actually helped me build MasterTalk. They're a lot smarter than I am. One of my support coaches for my executives is actually 19 years old. He's fairly young. So I, I think kids and young leaders are a lot smarter than most of us are. So what I have the kids do, and I have really small groups, like 8 to 10 people, is they all know each other, they're all friends with each other, and they all give feedback to each other. So whenever Hudson gives a presentation on on his on his amazing game, on what he does and what he loves, right, software, everyone else in the class is going to say, hey, Hudson, I would change this, I would change this, I would change this, and I would just listen to them, and I would always go last. And then when Sarah's presenting, Hudson's going to give Sarah feedback. So the other piece is how do you create a culture of accountability and how do you make the kids accountable to the other kids in the class, which isn't true in the traditional classroom where you're kind of just sitting on a desk, literally, and doing nothing for like eight hours and like taking notes. It's not fun for the kids. It's not interesting for them. And they're not invested in the outcome. That's two. Number three, celebrate, 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 and only focus on one presentation while you do it. The problem with the education system in general is that we bombard and inundate kids with 18,000 presentations. Because when Hudson is in school, maybe not now, but maybe in the next couple of years, Hudson, when you do presentations, it's not just going to be one for history. It's going to be one for English, one for Spanish, one for computers, one for something else. And you're just trying to survive until the next presentation. Whereas my approach has always been, just focus on Airsoft for 12 weeks, not 12 days, 12 weeks just do the same thing it's a lot less stressful you get a lot better it's fun it's like playing sports you do it as regularly as you want and then at the end of the program what we do is we have the kids present to all the parents and the kids just blow everyone's minds it's pretty amazing so yeah that's what i recommend to recap for any educator on the call number one keep it small classes eight to ten number two have the kids pick the topic and coach each other on the topic and number three, keep it energetic, celebrate the wins, and celebrate progression. Is that the way you taught when you were in college and you were teaching your um, classmates? Uh, that that was a bit is different. That, is that, yeah. you? This is more like trying to instill the love for communicating. You got it. So okay. that, that's actually a really interesting question that no one's asked me, is the difference between the kids and what I did in uni a few years later and the difference is the kids anyone below 15 i would say the goal is really just to be positive 95 percent of the time because they're still trying to build their self-esteem right they're, they're they're trying to figure out their identity especially when they're seven like my youngest client ever was six years old mm. right and and she was amazing way better than her dad i always tell him that it's kind of a funny joke <laughs> and the reason is because we're super positive they're super moldable they're very open so I, i'm i'm very positive whereas when i was 19 20 and i was coaching those students even if they were young they were really good at communication these are people who would go out to competitions in australia and singapore and comp i know this sounds really odd everyone who's listening but people actually do this schools spend <laughs> thousands of dollars i always have to explain this yeah schools... i'd never heard of it before i read about you yeah it's a, it's a very small world it's probably like a thousand people in Canada know what a case competition is. Maybe maybe a few thousand, but yeah. 
the idea is like people literally spend thousands of dollars of school funds everything to fly you out to one of these schools across the world to present against other universities. A couple of schools in the U.S. that are really good. Uh, the University of Pennsylvania, Wharton School of Business, Georgetown University, Harvard. Those are a couple of good schools who are really good at case competitions, as an example. University of Florida as well. Gators, right? Go Gators in the <laughs> yeah. Florida. So, so just the fact that I know that probably stuns you. You're probably like, how does Brendan know that? Because I know that UF is really good at cases. So, so yeah, this is a very niche international phenom. But the the summary is, I we were really pushy on those on those individuals. I would really teach them like really advanced tricks, and that's how I got that's how I got to coach CEOs when I was twenty two. It's because of that experience in uni. The the case competitions are always business uh, subjects related. You got it, and I can break one down really quickly. So w- one example of a case competition. This was in Florida, actually, was the Heaveners International case competition. So what happens there is literally 20 universities from across the world fly out to Florida for like a week before COVID, of course. Now all of those are done online right now. And then what happens is, let's say you get a case on Uber. Okay, we need to try and expand Uber, try and get more people on the service. But what's interesting about this competition, especially in something like that, one of those big ones like in Florida, is it's not just people who are sitting and judging your presentation. Literally executives from that company will come on a weekend, sit down, pay the university to be there, and judge these competitions. And the reason they do this, so people kind of have a backstory on this, is because the top talent from every university usually does case competitions. Like most of my buddies, they all work in all of the big companies, you know, Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, Deloitte, IBM. They all work at the top schools, uh, top companies, because a lot of these executives recruit them before they even graduate. So that's the reason why most of us do these competitions, because Hudson's probably listening to this and saying, why in the world would I ever do this? <laughs> I just <laughs> want to play soft. Uh, or, yeah, the, the game that he was referring to. Whereas... For us, it's like you solve a problem, and I was just obsessed with those things, and that's how I got good at communication. So, obviously, being a great communicator, if you can do that, that opens up a lot of possibilities. So what can a team do to make getting up in front of people not so terrifying? Yeah, you, you know what I always like to start with, Rachel? It's a question that I'd love for every teen to answer, and it's a question most adults don't bother with. And the question is, how would the world change if you are an exceptional communicator? Most of us don't dream about our communication. When we think about public speaking, like to your point, glossophobia, nerves, no thanks, gross, right? It's <laughs> like it, people don't want to, it's like the plague, like you don't want to be around it. And that's why I never talk about glossophobia at all on podcast interviews or even in my videos because it defeats the purpose of trying to get better at communication. I actually get away from the fear as quickly as possible because it it prevents us from even getting better in the first place. So let's do something most of us don't do, which is dreaming about our communication. We dream about our vacations. We dream about things to do for fun with our friends, but we don't dream about this very important and crucial skill which is communication. So I would just reflect on how would the world change if you are an exceptional communicator? How would the relationship with your friends change, your family, something you like to do? Think like So let's say I was convincing um, Hudson of this question. You know, the game that he plays, I would say, hey, look, Hudson, 
how is communication going to help you in that game? You're going to be able to communicate better with your teammates, right? You're going to be able to get better results. You're going to be able to work as a team, much like paintball, and win the game. So it gets him more excited about working on his communication. It's not just about presenting Shakespeare anymore. It's about, whoa, like if I got really good at communication, I could like score more points and get really good at this thing. And this is something I want to do. That's what I encourage every team to start doing is start dreaming about your communication. And then you'll find a compelling reason outside of the education system, to be honest, that will actually really compel you. And here are some common examples that I've seen from many teenagers. Getting involved in extracurricular activities, being a part of a nonprofit organization. I see a lot of eight-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds who are dangerous at communication because the founder of the nonprofit says, this is an opportunity for you to make a difference. Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity for you to go get your classmates involved to be volunteers. And these kids kick, like they are just amazing at communication because they have a reason to do it, convincing right. their friends to do that. So those are a couple of examples that come to mind. So focus on the positive, not on the negative, and you'll get further. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, that goes along with what we were saying earlier. If your why is big enough, it doesn't really matter what the negatives are. Right. And to build on that, we don't cultivate the why enough at any stage of anyone's life. Like we don't go up to the 15-year-olds and say, what do you care about? What do you love to do? Instead, we just barrage them and say, you got to make a choice. And that choice <laughs> is what major are you going to pick in college? And if you pick the wrong one your life will be destroyed. That's the message we send our children. Yeah. Instead of just saying, what do you like to do? What do you love? And how do we figure out how to make more of that come alive? Yeah, and then they're so afraid to make any decisions. What you're saying goes a lot along with a lot of what we teach. We Have you ever heard of the confidence competence loop? No, would love to hear. No, you've got to hear about this, Brendan. Um, do you know who Brendan Burchard is? Of course, yeah, I've been to his yeah. events, he's great. He teaches this. So there's this loop and the more confident you become, the more competent, sorry, the more competent you become in anything, the more skills you get, it leads to more confidence. And then the more confident you are, the more competent you become, and it just loops on you. So it doesn't even matter what the skill is in. As long as you learn a skill in something, it gives you more confidence, which makes you more likely to go out and do more stuff. So it just kind of loops so this is another skill people can learn. You get more confident in this, then you become more willing to try something else. And then you're unstoppable. I love that, by the way. Jenna has a question. Yeah, Jenna My older is, sister. Yeah. Uh, she says, how can we not shake when we're nervous when we're like t doing a presentation? Right. So one thing I would tell Jenna to, to think about is, you know, the first time we present something, it's normal that we're shaking a little bit, right? It's a part of the process. But I would say is to do the thing that most people do, don't do, which is to present the same thing a couple of times. So once Jenna presents the, the first time, she might shake a little bit. But if you're presenting the same thing 20 times, 25 times, it's probably a lot easier to present that's one trick is to just repeat repeat and rinse and that's going to help a lot the other piece is the random word exercise this is a fun one that I do with a lot of my kiddos and this is fun right so the random word exercise you pick a random word like sofa or couch or lighting 
And what we do is we, we tell the kids to just present a random topic. But what this does is it distracts them from the nerves. Because I say something like fruit, and then the person does fruit, and then we just clap. We go, oh my god, that was amazing. Like, that's literally <laughs> what I do. And I, would, I don't talk that way with my executives, by the way. But, of course, with the eight-year-olds, I go, oh my god! Or I go, Hudson, that was amazing! How about you try Destiny? And then, and then Hudson tries something with Destiny. We clap again. And then Hudson just forgets that he was scared in the first place. That's kind of the, the strategy, is we distract them from the shaking. And then after they do it 20 to 25 times, they don't even remember they shook at all in the first place. Yeah, that's a great exercise. You, you, you say people should do that every day, right? Just pick five things. It's five random objects. Absolutely. And to push this even further, since this is more focused on teens, do it with your family, literally. This is what me and my business partner do, whether people join or not, is we just give that as a give back to the community. Like, even if you can't afford a speech coach to help, you know, maybe your kids to go through this process for people who are listening, totally fine, right? Do it, like, as a mother, as a father, just do it with your kid. Like, before eating uh, dinner, just go, hey, Robert, do uh, pasta. And then, and you as the parent, I encourage you as well to actually do it and set the example for your kids. And that's just a fun way to hold each other accountable. It's super easy. It's lighthearted. It's not stressful. There's no grade there's no measurement. It's just about progression. And then you'll see the progression. Trust me. That's cool. And yeah. then if you can do it in a restaurant, you get bonus points. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Uh, so what are some common mistakes speakers make? Yeah, you know, let's talk about those. But before we get to the mistakes, there's another quick trick I can give as well since we're on our yeah. teen show. One other thing I recommend my exact clients do with their kids is whenever they want something, have them make a presentation defending it. So now what my clients do is, let's say their kid comes up to them and says, Daddy, Daddy, I want uh, the new PlayStation 5 or something. So instead of them just caving in and buying it, I always tell them to flip it back to them and say, make me a five-minute presentation convincing me why I should spend money on this. Right. Almost all of them go back and build the presentation because they want it. Or they, they just don't want the thing anymore. You save money. So it's a win-win for you as a parent. <laughs> right. You want a puppy? I need a presentation. You, you won't believe this, <laughs> Rachel. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story. You won't believe it, but it's super related to what you just said. So in my first kid's batch, this was last year, one of my clients who was 13 years old, I was like, he really didn't want anything to do with public speaking. I just said, what do you want out of life, dude? And yes, I use the word dude when I talk to kids. I change my language too. And he said, well, I want a dog, but my dad doesn't want to get a dog. And I said, here, this program will teach you how to convince your dad to get a dog, to get you a dog. And that's how I got him in, to be honest. But, the, but you, you'd be shocked to know that at week seven, his dad bought him a dog. <laughs> Why? Because every time he kept going in the class and he kept presenting, I always asked him, if you were your dad, would you buy yourself a dog? And he would say, no. And I said, why? Then he'd say, oh, well... My dad doesn't like this. He doesn't like that. And I said, exactly. So you need to play to those objections. So instead of saying, hey, dad, I need a dog. Hey, dad, I need a dog. You have to make it in his favor. You have to say, you know, dogs will really help us a lot, dad. You know, having that companionship. You know, and I'm more than happy to mow the lawn three times a week. I'm happy <laughs> to do the dishes. It worked. His dad was stunned. He was like, wow, my son is an exceptional communicator. Let let me buy this dog for him. And it worked. 
and and that's the key I want to drive for people is using that as a technique with your kids is going to help a lot because now it forces Hudson to justify everything he wants to do. And, mm-hmm. it, and it gets him really smart really fast. That's the other piece. In terms of mistakes, you know what I would say, Rachel, is you know mistakes are important to know, but mistakes aren't going to, just acknowledging them aren't going to take us really far with our communication. It's about building the wins and the momentum. But I'd say the biggest one that comes up is lack of practice and understanding what engagement actually means and and being engaging as a speaker you know i get this question a lot oh brendan how do i become more engaging as a speaker and my response is always how many times have you given the presentation the same one they go oh like twice i just respond with okay well if you've only done it twice how are we supposed to get really good at communication Right, so the key is really repetition is king and focusing on one single presentation enough times where your momentum, your confidence, and your willingness to speak goes up dramatically. So do you memorize the speech? Good question. I don't. So I recommend scripting it, especially if it's your first time, you're nervous, and then practicing a couple of times with your paper. But when it's time for the presentation, uh, you definitely don't want the script. Right, because then you sound like a robot. Right. And it doesn't do you, it doesn't, it does you a disservice as well because many of the presentations you'll tackle in your life, like this one, don't have a script. So you just do bullet points basically in your head. Yeah, you got it. So generally, how it works in an actual presentation is since you've done it enough times, you start to feel the presentation because it's always the same intro. It's always the same conclusion. And then the content might shift a bit, but it'll always be the three pieces of today's discussion talking about A, talking about B, talking about C, and then the way you explain A, B, and C will just change from presentation to presentation, but the principles will stay the same. Hmm. That doesn't really apply, though, to like school presentations, because you're, you're not, you don't have the same, I can see that in business, but like, you don't have the same introduction, the same conclusion, like you're getting up, you have this current event you got to do, you... <laughs> Hudson's rolling his eyes. You have this current event you have to get up and talk about. You're you're it's going to be different every time. More if you're in school, right? You're absolutely correct, Rachel. That's why the the solution to this is if Hudson really wants to be a great communicator, he needs to do a presentation outside of the education system and get really good at it. So it could be, you know, airsoft, it could be something else, it could be a nonprofit he really cares about. But it needs to be outside of the education system. And what I tell the other kiddos is once you get really good at that airsoft presentation, like you're absolutely amazing, like world class, then you take those skills and you bring them back into school. So so even if you're, you're presenting boring stuff, you're presenting them in such a compelling way because you learned the technique of how to speak through the presentation you actually liked. Awesome. That's a good point. I know that you used to be a really good gamer and you spent a ton of time working your way up to be one of the best players, but one day you decided to set it aside. What brought you to that decision? (laughs) You guys have clearly done your homework on me. Interesting. So yeah, I used to be a professional League of Legends player. So League of Legends is, uh, for those who don't know, it's a big big online multiplayer game. And basically what happens in this game is it's five versus five. I won't get into the details too much, but it was a huge team-based game a few years ago. 
uh, you wouldn't believe this, but the Staples Center in L- I think I believe is Los Angeles for the World Championship. This is people literally watching other people play video games. By the way, <laughs> was sold out in like a minute. It was crazy, and a lot of these things get sold out a lot. It's, it's quite the experience, and and I'm I'm someone who's very competitive, and I loved video games growing up, and I feel there's a lot we can learn from them. But the reason I gave up on them, Hudson, overall, uh, when I started university, is because it was taking a lot of my life, and frankly. I wasn't really happy playing League of Legends. It wasn't fun for me. I was just mostly competitive, and it wasn't good for my mental health either. <laughs> Not to say that gaming is bad in general. There's a lot of fun games. It's just my personality. I, I, can't, I can't have fun when I play games. It has to be a competition. So that's why I refocused my energy on business school and uh, getting really good at case competitions. And yeah, I haven't gamed in, uh, in like five years, and I'm definitely super happy with that decision. Did you just quit cold turkey? I did. So how how the League of Legends system works? I hope this, oh this is a teen show, right? So I guess it's not too boring for people. So how how the ranking system works in League of Legends is you have bronze, silver, gold, platinum, diamond, master, and challenger. These are kind of the ranks in the game. Right. And diamond is the top one percent of the community, and master there's literally like five hundred people, like just like as a number, and you know, challenger, it's like the top 200 players. That might have changed, though, because I haven't played in a long time. But the idea is once you get to diamond, you're like in the top, I don't know, maybe 10,000 to 100,000 players. So for you to get to the next level after that, you really have to put in a lot of hours. So after I hit diamond, after failing for many years, I just quit the game cold turkey after that. I was like, I'm done. I, I, I just want to focus on other things in my life. <laughs> right. It, it's not impacting the world. Yeah. I mean, I didn't say it like that, so to speak. <laughs> but uh, back then it was more, I was 19. I didn't really have any money. And my, my mom was working minimum wage. And I was like, okay, I should probably focus on making a career out of myself. And, and that's what happened. That's good that you uh, were enough self-aware that you decided that. You said that when you were a teenager, you loved to learn and you would listen to all kinds of different, like Lewis Howes and all that other stuff. Were you interested in just personal development in general? Or was there a certain topic you were, you like you talked about, find the one thing you really liked? Was that what you were doing? Trying to find the one thing you liked? You know, Rachel, part of it, I'm not really sure. I think some of it is luck as well. But what happened with personal development, I'll tell you the story. When I was uh, 16 or 17, I've always been curious about successful people. You know, in the same way other guys watch like sports, which I've never been into, I would just watch like a TED Talk (laughs) just for fun. I I never thought I was a nerd. Yeah, I'm I'm just a nerd, like plain and simple, total nerd. Literally, when I was 16, 17, I would spend 10 hours gaming, playing League all day, and the other six hours was literally watching anime or watching TED Talks or some other thing on YouTube. That's basically what I did. And I <laughs> accidentally stumbled onto Lewis's podcast when I was like 18 or something. And the reason was because I, I, there's this founder I really respect, um, Adam Braun. He's the founder of Pencils of Promise. He like builds schools across the world. Mm-hmm. And I saw his TED Talk once, and I wanted to learn more about the guy. So... I noticed there's this guy named Lewis Howes who interviewed Adam for like an hour. And I was like, man, this this audio is like so long. I'll never listen to this. But luckily, because I live in a suburb from Montreal, it's like it takes me like an hour and a half to take the bus from my house to the school. 
So I was like, you know what? I might as well listen to this episode. So I listened to it. It blew my mind. And ever since that day, I listened to 10 episodes of Lewis's podcast every single week for like five years. So I think I'm one of the few people who actually listen to like all of the episodes since the beginning. <laughs> Obviously, I, I, I've, I haven't caught up anymore. I lost track after like 800. But that's how I actually became the person I was today is primarily because of Lewis's podcast that I accidentally stumbled on. I was listening to 10 hours of podcasts a week and I was starting to download all of the most successful people in the world when I was like 18. So when I turned like 22, I had all of their knowledge in my head. And it was with that knowledge that I started Master Talk. And I guess that's where, that's how I got here at 25, I guess. <laughs> that's that's interesting. Like yeah. you're doing anime, League of Legends, and then TED Talk. It just seems like those don't go together. Yeah, they really don't. I don't, I don't get it. But yeah, that's how it worked. <laughs> actually, to be honest, I actually have never said this on a podcast either. Uh, and, the, and I hope people don't hate me for this. But most of the League of Legends community, Hudson might know this, is Asian primarily. And most of the Asians I hanged out with, well, they would spend as much time playing League as they would studying for exams and watching TED Talks and being nerds. <laughs> so that was my upbringing. Right, so it's like, okay, we're gonna sing karaoke on this day, and then the other day we're studying all night for an exam to get an A on. So I guess I guess part of a part of my success, now that I think of it, it was probably because of that video game. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So you're talking about how you know. I remember when I first started listening to podcasts. It's probably it hasn't been that long, maybe two years. Um, but it, it was like, wow, there, there's all these talks. There's all these people that are on these TED, and I can sit in my car and like learn while I'm driving. Um, I quit listening to the radio once I started doing podcasts, listening to podcasts. It's like, and it's free, you know. It's like it's like a whole university sitting in your on your phone that you're just carrying around with you all day. But you said these guys really helped shape the person that you became. Is that why you're so committed to giving back and helping other people? Absolutely. You, you nailed it on the head, Rachel. Like for me, what I realized early, and I, I'm really grateful for those. I, we call them heroes, right? Seth Godin calls them heroes versus mentors. Mentors are people who train you directly. Heroes are generally people you never meet, but that inspire you in a big way. And what I got lucky with early is all of those hundreds of episodes, amongst other things I used to watch and still do, frankly, uh, really inspired me to think about the bigger picture because the biggest mistake most people, and Hudson might hopefully won't make this when he's my age, is we just want to climb the corporate ladder. You know, I was doing really well at IBM. I was making really good money and the promotion that they offered me was substantial. Right? We're talking like 50, 60% increases in salaries. If I kept going that way, I would have easily made a quarter of a million dollar salary before I was 28, right? And and that's the that's that's the path I think a lot of the smart people do. And what these heroes of mine convinced me of is what do you do after that, Brendan? Okay, you make all this money, you be all this successful, all that stuff. What do you do after that? And and I didn't have a good answer for it. So when the idea for Master Talk kind of fell on my lap, and I do believe some of that was destiny. I looked at my life and I had to make a decision. And the decision was, do I climb this corporate ladder, make the money I'm supposed to make and do nothing else with my life? Or do I take a chance on this and make a big difference in the world? Because if I pull this off, this is going to impact hun- 
generations, hundreds of years from now, because no one has democratized. Democratized, those who are listening, just means like making it more accessible to the world. No one has done it because most speech coaches don't really need to. They make a lot of money. They don't need to create free stuff for people. And when I realized what Lewis and people like that did for me, I realized it was important for me to do that on other people. And I just so happened to have a gift in an area that most people don't talk about. So, so here we are. Here we are. So what's in the future for you? Yeah, lots of things. Lots of things. I would say the first thing is, you know, keeping, keeping the dream alive. You know, I, I really feel like I'm just getting started. And in part of that was luck where, you know, I worked hard on a specific skill. I mastered it pretty young. And now I have a whole life in front of me to, to basically be what Dale Carnegie did in his era, which is how do you teach communication and make it accessible? But my perspective on this is the only unfortunate reality of Dale is he was born in the wrong time period of history. And what I mean by that is Dale taught communication, but he didn't have the technology to keep it after he passed right? We don't have a video on Dale. We don't have a podcast that Dale Carnegie guested on. So I can be that modern day Dale Carnegie where I can really spend my life and I have a lot of good years on me to keep sharing communication and frankly, keep building up my expertise and keep getting smarter. That's probably the first piece. The second piece of that is, you know, increasing my coaching business, you know, scaling that up so I have more financial resources for the YouTube channel. You know, I've gotten to a point in my career where I don't really need to make the YouTube videos anymore, but the YouTube videos is really my mission. So it's about, okay, how do I get more executive clients who then give me the financial flexibility to create better YouTube videos? And then the third piece is using the same financial resources to really invest a lot more across the other socials, you know, being more present on Insta, being more present on TikTok. I keep hitting myself for not taking advantage of TikTok. It's just, I'm just not really good at making videos. So I need to, I need to increase my financial resources. So I can hire someone to do that for me. So yeah, that's, that's probably the next three steps for now, but I'm definitely excited for the future. That's awesome. You got big dreams. Trying to, we only live once. We might as well. Hey, is there anything else you want to share with us? Yeah, I think the best piece of advice for anyone who's young that I'd love to share, besides a book recommendation that I'll give right now, the most important book that I've ever read in my life is a book called Thirst by Scott Harrison. I think Scott is one of the smartest people in the world, and I also think he's got the biggest, most important mission to take on, which is getting every human being clean water to drink. I'm a really big fan of his work, and I think Thirst by Scott Harrison should be a mandatory read for, for every public school in the world. So I highly recommend that book. And the other piece is a quote that he shares that I'd love to leave you all with. And Scott says this. He says, the goal is not to live forever, but rather to create something that will. So I encourage all of you who are listening to focus on what do you want that contribution to be? Is it a painting that you think will really impact a lot of lives? Is it a speech that you want to give? Is it a podcast that you want to start? I don't really care what the thing is. As long as it sets you on fire, as long as you're really excited about it, go ahead and pursue that because the world needs that a lot more than you think. Awesome. That's great. If someone wants to learn more about you, where can they find you? Absolutely, Hudson. Best way is definitely the YouTube channel. All you got to do is type master talk in one word. 
and you'll find all of the information there. And if you want to hire me for coaching, you can check out the YouTube channel. My contact details are available there as well. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Brendan. What you have accomplished shows that skill is not a function of age. It's a result of lots of hard work and practice. And I just want to thank all of you for joining us today. Hope you take these great tips that Brendan gave us and go out and become a better communicator. Have a great week. 